In Isaiah's description of Christ, written 700 years before Jesus was born, the prophet describes our Lord as a man of sorrows, familiar with suffering, which makes following Jesus easier when we experience sorrow. What a comfort it is to know that when Jesus came to earth, he did not spare himself the emotional and mental anguish that makes us all human. At some point in time, we will all grieve. Loss is a part of life. Uh, the biggest losses produce the greatest grief. Isaiah tells us that the Lord is not only familiar with his own grief, but he can carry our sorrows if we will allow it. Well, some of you are in deep grief today, and I'm glad you joined us. Others uh, will be reminded of a time not so long ago, but your sorrow is not as intense as it once was. Some of us have yet to experience deep grief. Well, wherever you are in your journey, we hope that what we say today and how we say it will help. It has been said that in the Western world, we do everything we can to avoid grief and to rush through the grieving process when it happens. Those who have lost a loved one will testify that within days after the funeral, people just stop asking, even though the one grieving will be hurting for a very long time. Seems we're uncomfortable with sadness, with sorrow. So it's important that a church family not rush the process, uh, keeping in mind that it's only been a few months or even a couple of years since the loss, and those left behind are still hurting. They're thinking about it all the time, so it's totally appropriate to bring it up in conversation. The grief is with them constantly, so we need to be with them as well. It's important for us to all learn about these things before we suffer loss so that we can be better prepared to navigate the grief when it comes. But having said that, it's impossible to truly prepare yourself for a great loss. When it hits, it hits hard, and it doesn't let up for a long, long time. That's how you know you love deeply, because you are grieving deeply. It's also important for us to establish strong Christian bonds before a crisis, before we experience a great loss, because no one should grieve alone. When one of us suffers, we all suffer, and that's how it should be. Now, some people treat church as if it's a, a place you go once in a while, instead of a family that you join. Those who wisely invest themselves in a church family benefit greatly when they suffer, primarily because they are known. We say it often around here that you need to engage with other believers before you desperately need them. King David, who wrote many of the Psalms, knew grief. He grieved deeply when he sinned in a big way. He lost a newborn. Years later, he lost an adult son who had rebelled and was killed before they could reconcile. Later, he wrote Psalm 55, cast your cares on the Lord and he will sustain you. Well, that's gonna be our prayer for you as Diane shares with us now from scripture and from personal experience. Our prayer will be that Whatever loss you are grieving, when grief seems overwhelming, you will cast your cares upon Jesus so that he can sustain you. Jesus, who said, 
Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest, rest for your souls. Let me pray for you now as we move into this topic. Father, I pray for those of us that are grieving, that have joined today, and Lord, I just, I pray for them as, as we, we talk about this, that even talking about it wouldn't make it worse, but it would make it better. And as we open up and share from our grief and we don't rush through this, that Lord, we, we're able to say to one another, you know, I, I, I see you, I, I, I care about you. Lord, I pray for those that uh, this would open up some fresh wounds, but Lord, that it would be therapeutic and it would be, once again, to clean those wounds and to make sure that they're healing properly. Father, I pray for any that have suffered loss that we're aware of and that we have not reached out to them recently, that all of us would be prompted to pick up the phone and say, hey, I was just thinking about your loss and uh, wondering how you're doing today. So be with us, we pray, as we enter into this topic. In Christ's name, amen. Hello, we are in week two of our series on mental health. Last week, we talked about addiction. If you did not get a chance to hear that teaching, I recommend that you go to our incredible resource page that is found on our website. But this week, we are diving into the topic of grief. Now, when I think about mental health, grief is not the first thing that pops into my head. When I think about mental health, I think about the other topics that we're covering, like addiction, anxiety, depression. But grief is not on the top of my list for mental health concerns. And yet, as I have been studying this week, Especially over the last couple weeks, I have personally experienced deep loss in this season, and I can see now how unresolved grief can affect every area of our lives, from our physical to spiritual and mental well-being. Well, what I've been learning is that grief is an emotion that has been highly neglected and really misunderstood in our Western culture. In fact, unresolved grief leaves many of us haunted and in real pain for years. Now, grief counselor Russell Friedman, he says this about loss. Loss is inevitable, but we're given no feasible structure with which to handle it. So today, my hope is that I can give us a little bit more structure around this often neglected and misunderstood emotion. But before we get into the practical steps of how we start to process our grief, I think it's important that we begin with defining what grief is and what grief is not. And after we've unpacked those two things, we will open our text today in John 11, where we will see how Jesus processed his grief. Okay, but let's start with looking at what grief is. Now, one clinical definition defines it as this. Grief is the conflicting feelings caused by the end of something or a change in a familiar pattern or behavior. So according to this definition, we experience grief when something comes to an end or when we experience significant change in a rhythm of life or something that we're used to doing. Well, just this last week, I experienced that. I finished watching oh, the final episode in one of my favorite TV series, Downton Abbey. And when the episode came to an end, 
I experienced like this surge of sadness in my heart. I know I'm just a little dorky about that, but I didn't want it to end. I just wanted it to keep going with their lovely British accents and their dapper clothes. So I sat on the couch moping and eating candy for an hour. And as I sat there, my husband was like, are you okay? I was like, I think so. I think I'm going to get over this. Now, that's a minor grief, but have you experienced something coming to an end and feeling a stir of emotion? See, when things come to an end, it can cause grief. Now, the other part of that definition says that grief is conflicting feelings. Now, what exactly does that mean? Well, according to the Grief Recovery Institute, grievers often feel confused and frustrated by their feelings during loss. For example, if someone you love suffered for many years and they pass away, your initial feeling may be relief that they no longer have to suffer, while at the same time you feel sorrow because you can no longer be in their presence. Now, in addition to experiencing grief when someone we love passes away, it's important to note that if we look at that definition that I just shared, grief is the conflicting feelings caused by the end of something or a change in a familiar behavior or pattern. We experience grief in many other facets. Some ex examples of this, um, examples of other losses that can produce grief are divorce, death of a pet, miscarriage, moving, graduating from school, end of addictions, that's a change in behavior, major health changes, retirement, infertility, financial changes, holidays, that's a change in a routine, legal problems, becoming empty nesters. Now, we don't typically associate grief to all of those life events, but it's important for us to realize that we are designed to grieve the loss of all relationships or things that we deem significant. Now, as I was reflecting on that truth, it brought to mind the first few months after I became a new parent. I remember not being as happy as I thought I should be. I mean, I was so overjoyed that our son was in the world, but there was something underneath the surface that I couldn't quite pinpoint that was causing these conflicting emotions within me. Well, one evening, my husband, he came home from work, and he started telling me about his day, as we typically do. We were just talking, and as he was talking, I had this reaction inside of me of deep resentment and jealousy towards him. I was jealous that he got to leave the house. He got to see people in real life. He got to go to the bathroom whenever he wanted. Well, I was barely able to take a shower because my newborn needed me. Well, a couple days later, I shared with a friend how I was feeling. I shared with her that even though I loved my baby boy so much, there was this part of me that felt trapped and, con and wasn't content, and I was truly ashamed of my feelings. And as I was venting to her, she pointed out that she thought I was dealing with grief. See, when I became a first-time parent, I gained a precious child, but I also lost something that was significant to me. I lost my freedom over my schedule. I lost my sleep. I'm not a person that does well on little sleep. I lost my security of controlling my day and knowing what to expect. And I remember her telling me, it's okay to be sad about processing the things that you've lost. In fact, I needed to identify those things before I could move forward. See, we grieve the loss of all relationships or things that we deem significant. So this is a good moment for us to pause and reflect on what significant losses have you experienced recently? 
Perhaps right now is the first time you've even considered that you were grieving the loss of something. You know, you've been trying to move on. You tell yourself, just get over it. But in the back of your mind, it's there. It hurts when you think about it. Perhaps you went through a bad breakup or a divorce. Maybe you moved and lost your community. Did you have a falling out with your teenager? Has your health declined? Did you lose your job? Did someone you trust disappoint you? Did a dream you had not get fulfilled? Now, in addition to personal losses, over the last year, our nation has been walking through so much loss and grief. Many people that I talk to, they have this sense that their security is being shaken. The assurance that they once had feels broken. In life, it feels unpredictable, and it's difficult to make plans because nothing feels stable. See, those are all signs of grief. And so it's important that we identify and that we're honest with ourselves about the losses that we have incurred because grief is our natural response to change and loss in our life. And here's the key. How we identify and how we process our grief will be vital to our overall mental health. Now, before we discover what steps we should take to process our grief, and I hope by now you can see that each of us is somehow impacted by loss, I want to identify briefly what grief is not. <clears throat> now, as I was studying for this sermon, I read through multiple grief books, I read articles, I did Bible studies, listened to podcasts, spoke with incredible licensed therapists, and one resource that was so helpful for me is the Grief Recovery Handbook. Now, this book is written by the founders of the Grief Recovery Institute, and in their book, they help to demystify some of the common myths about grief. Now, we don't have time to go over each one in detail, but there are a few details today. There are a few myths that I think will be helpful for us. Now, first and foremost, a common myth is that there is no absolute stages in grief. Now, many of you have probably heard about the five stages of grief. Now, this concept, it originated with psychiatrist Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, and in 1969, she conceptualized the five stages of grief for those facing terminal illness. And those stages are, perhaps you've heard of them, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. Now, her work around this concept with those suffering with terminal illness and their grief response, it revolutionized how we help those that have received a terminal diagnosis. And because of this helpful process she created, many people began adopting this concept for how every person processes grief. Now, although this model, it can be a helpful guide or tool to assist a griever in identifying what they're feeling, it's important to know that there are no absolute stages when it comes to grief. And I have personally experienced this reality. I've been able to share with many of you that my father passed away earlier this year due to COVID complications. Oh, he passed away in February, on February 3rd, 2021. His death was sudden. The doctors thought that he was making progress. Um, but the virus took a turn for the worse, and he st it started attacking his lungs, and it put strain on all his vital organs, and before we knew it, he was gone. Now, my siblings and I didn't get a chance to say goodbye, and because he had COVID, we weren't allowed to be with him as he passed away in the hospital. Now, my immediate response to his passing was sorrow. I knew he was gone. I knew that there was nothing I could do about it, but I so desperately wish I could have been by his side. 
Now, in the months that have followed, I have gone through so many ebbs and flows as I process his death. I've had moments of happiness reflecting on memories of him. I've had moments of relief when the funeral was over. I've felt disappointment and guilt that I didn't get to spend more time with him while he was alive. See, for me, even though I felt and still have moments of deep sorrow, I did not experience a stage of denial or bargaining in my grief journey. See, the truth is all of our relationships are unique, and each loss that we experience can cause an array of emotions. So it's important to know that we don't need to categorize, we don't need to stage our grief, because how you process a loss can be completely different than someone who's experienced a very similar loss. Okay, the second myth of grief is the idea that time heals all wounds. Now, this is a common saying, and perhaps after some, someone you love passed away, some well-meaning friend said, just give it time and you'll feel better. But what happens when it's been 10 years since the loss? You lost your spouse and you still feel just as much pain today as you did the moment you lost them. Or what happens when you're still upset about losing your job two years ago and it's starting to affect your current work experience? See, when we adopt the principle that time heals all wounds, it can become detrimental because time itself does not heal our wounds. It's what we do within that time that will help us to process and heal the pain caused by loss. Now, we understand this to be true with all other facets of pain in the body. Like if someone breaks their arm, we wouldn't advise that person, just give it time, it'll heal. No, instead we would say, please go to the doctor, get the bone set, let them cast it for a few weeks, and then you might still need physical therapy and to take it easy. And see, the same concept is true for grief. Grief is an emotional pain that we can't ignore in hopes that it will get better. But we must face the grief and process the complexity of issues and pain that may arise because of it. Okay, the final myth I want to identify is the idea that grievers need to be left alone. Now, it's true that when you're processing loss, there will be times when you'll need to process alone. Um, but there is this common idea that when someone is going through something difficult, we just need to give them space. Just let them be over there. Well, after my dad died, one of the most heartbreaking things that I personally experienced was when people avoided me. Now, I understand that this response can come from a place of not knowing what to say or afraid you'll say the wrong thing. But what avoidance communicates to the griever is that their loss is not important or that their sadness or whatever emotion they're feeling, it makes people uncomfortable. Well, as a society, we are taught that displays of emotional pain are not welcome. In fact, they make people uneasy. How often have you seen someone begin to cry and then they apologize for their tears? Or have you heard a parent say, if you're gonna cry, go to your room? I might've said that to one of my children. Well, in those moments, we're solidifying the idea that we should grieve alone. And hey, only come out when you're done with all that emotional stuff. So where did this idea come from that we can't show sadness? Well, there's many facets and reasons for this way of thinking, but in our Western culture, the pursuit of happiness, this is a value unlike any other. In the Declaration of Independence, we are told that each of us are entitled to life, liberty, and the pursuit of what? Happiness. See, it's in this constant pursuit of happiness where we find this ideology that any emotion outside of happiness is an expression of failure, an expression of weakness or vulnerability. And it's because of this belief that it perpetuates our fear to not show normal emotions. 
And if we do need to express those other emotions, we must do it alone. Okay, so let's quickly recap the three myths that we just identified. There are no absolute stages in grief. Time doesn't necessarily heal all wounds, and we don't need to grieve alone. Now, with all of this in mind, I want to turn to the Bible to see how Jesus experienced grief and how he processed it and what we can learn from him. You can turn with me now to the Gospel of John, chapter 11, starting in verse 17. Now, before we get there, this is the story where Jesus' good friend Lazarus was deathly ill. His sister, uh, Mary and Martha, who were also very close to Jesus, they sent word to him that Lazarus was sick, and they wanted him, please come right away and heal him. But when Jesus found out that he was sick, he didn't leave right away. And by the time he got to him, Lazarus had died. And that's where we're going to pick up our story, starting in verse 17. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now, Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews came to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed home. Now, the first thing I want us to see is that facing the pain of grief takes courage. Now, this is a subtle detail in our text, but Jesus risked a lot going to Bethany that day. It was close to the religious headquarters of Jerusalem where people were plotting to kill him, to hurt him. But Jesus had courage to take the risk, to not only face that situation, but to face the situation and the emotions that would come because of the death of his friend. Now, a common response to grief is to avoid the pain that it brings. I understand that. Grief can bring to the surface in our hearts so many things that we didn't even know were there. Insecurity, pain from our past, fear of the future. And because of this, we can be tempted to just keep ourselves busy. We can try to numb the pain with substances or another compulsive behavior that distracts our mind. I know social media is really good for this, or in my case, eating candy on the couch when my favorite TV show ends. But what Jesus is showing us is that finding the courage to confront the pain is a healthy and needed process. All right, let's continue reading. Verse 21, Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Okay, the next thing that can help us as we are processing our own grief is that we need to be honest with God about what we're feeling. When Martha saw Jesus, the first thing she said to him is, you should have been here. And in verse 32, her sister Mary would say the same thing to Jesus. As these sisters were processing the loss of their brother, you can see that they were experiencing emotions of disappointment with Jesus. They had witnessed him doing incredible things for other people, and they were his dearest friends. And yet when they needed him most, he wasn't there. Have you ever felt that way before? That God's accessible to other people, but not to you. That he abandons you in your greatest moment of need. See, I imagine that in their disappointment, they felt anger, broken trust, hopelessness, abandonment. But what's beautiful about this moment is that they told Jesus straight to his face how they felt. They got real. See, we're often scared to tell God how we really feel during times of loss because we think he can't handle it or he's going to be angry with me if I express my doubts and anger towards him. See, he could have helped me to keep my job. He could have saved that person. He could have provided for this situation. He could have restored this. 
But what we see from this text is that God can not only handle our emotions, He wants us to openly process our feelings of doubt, confusion, frustrations, fears, or concerns that we are experiencing as we process loss. See, Jesus didn't get mad at Martha and Mary because he knew that they needed to get that off their chest. And he wants to extend that same opportunity for us to process honestly about what we're feeling. Okay, so we just read that Martha met Jesus while he was still outside of the village so that she could process with him, hey, here's how I'm feeling. And let's see what happens next, verse 28. After she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary. The teacher is here, she said, and he's asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up and quickly went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn. Okay, the next thing I want us to see is that we need community while we are grieving. Now I know that I touched on this a bit earlier, but I can't stress how important this is. We read that Mary was in her house and there was a group of people comforting her. The day my dad passed away, I remember not knowing what to do. It was one of the first times I had experienced such a significant and close death in my life. And after the initial shock and the tears began to slow down, my best friend called me on the phone and she's like, hey, how are you doing? Is there anything that you need? And I told her, I have no idea what I need, but I could use the company of a good friend. Well, when she got to my house, um, I was sitting outside and she joined me in the cold February air. She brought me a blanket and for a couple hours we just sat there. And I sat quietly crying off and on. She didn't put pressure on me to talk or to process, but she stayed faithfully by my side. See, grief is often a feeling associated with trauma. It's traumatic for you to lose someone or something that you love. And in our trauma, we can begin to isolate ourselves because we're not sure if anyone else will truly understand what we're going through. See, it's important to know that there is valuable time to pull away to process, but then there are times when we, we need to allow others to bring us help, comfort, and support. Now, perhaps you're thinking, I don't know anybody willing to do this for me. You're struggling to identify who that person could be. Well, one incredible resource that is available is attending a grief care support group. About a month after my dad died, I joined a virtual grief support group. And I was nervous and hesitant because I didn't know what to expect, but I knew that I needed tools and support in what I was going through. And truly, joining that group was one of the best decisions I made in that season because it not only allowed me to face the loss, but it allowed me to meet others who were willing to walk with me through the loss. Now, these groups are available through church. I know Cornerstone has grief groups going right now at two of our physical locations in Brentwood and Livermore, and you can find that resource on our website. But if a grief group isn't accessible to you, you can typically find one at your local hospice facility. Many people don't know about this incredible free resource, but most hospice facilities offer grief groups on a regular basis and virtually. But again, I just want to emphasize how important it is that in our grief that we seek support, but especially those willing to sit with us, those willing to listen, those willing to lighten the load as we process what we're feeling. Okay, let's continue reading. And we're going to skip down to verse 33. 
When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him, he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. The last thing I wanna point out from this passage as we are processing our loss is the promise that the promise of resurrection doesn't necessarily make loss less painful. As I was studying this week, verse 35 stood out so much to me. It's incredible that our Savior, who knew that there was life after death, who knew that he had the power to bring Lazarus back to life. In fact, he does bring Lazarus back to life later in the story. But when he was faced with the death of his dear friend, he still wept for him. He was still filled with sorrow that Lazarus had to experience death. He was still disturbed in his spirit that Lazarus's family had to experience the pain of losing their loved one. See, Jesus's reaction struck a chord in my heart. Why did he cry if he knew there was life after death? Well, one of the reasons Jesus was so distressed as he approached the tomb of Lazarus was because he knew the pain that everyone was going through was not a part of the original design. See, death, destruction, and loss was never God's plan for his creation. And that's the very reason why Jesus entered into our pain so that he could begin to fully restore what was broken. But even though we have this promise of redemption and we have this promise of resurrection, he knew that each of us would still have to endure loss and death. And so he mourned that reality deeply. See, when someone has lost a loved one, we often hear people say things like, don't be sad, they're in a better place, or don't worry, you'll get to see them again one day. Now, although this might be an intellectual truth, it doesn't take away from the pain of the loss. I think there is this unspoken expectation that if we believe in resurrected life after death, that we shouldn't be sad when someone dies. But it's important to note that God himself cried when faced with the death of someone he loved. See, here's the truth. Faith in Jesus doesn't make loss hurt less. Our faith keeps us from despair. Our faith gives us an anchor of hope, but it doesn't take away the pain. So it's okay to be sad, even if you know there's hope for a better tomorrow. Okay, let's review the four things that we can see from the story about how Jesus processed grief. First, facing our grief takes courage and risk. We can be honest with God about how we're feeling. We need community to process our grief. And the promise of resurrection doesn't eliminate the pain of loss. Now, I want to be clear that this is not an extensive or comprehensive list of how to process our grief. And for many of us, this may be the beginning of our journey. But these steps, if we take them, they will absolutely help us to move forward in our healing process. Now, before we close, I want to take a moment to speak to anyone that is suffering with deep loss and sorrow right now. Perhaps your soul feels overwhelmed and you feel trapped in the pain. Well, last week in preparation for this sermon, I spent lots of time remembering my dad. And I started looking at pictures of him that I had saved on my phone. Now, my dad was a more stoic man, um, but he had a great smile and a great laugh. And in fact, one of my goals as I was a little girl was to get him to laugh, and that transferred into adulthood. That was always my goal, get my dad to laugh. And as I was looking at pictures, I noticed how much he lit up when he was with his grandkids, something I hadn't really noticed before. 
And again, another wave of deep sorrow washed over me because of his absence. And as I was sitting there in that moment, God met me in that space. See, he gently reminded me that it's okay. Grief is there to remind us that it's okay to hurt, but it also offers us a refuge. Grief says it's okay to be sad and to not wrap it up with a bow. He reminded me that it's okay to not forget your loved one and wish that they were with you. And it's okay to even fear death because we were meant to be eternal. See, I know the pain is real and the desperation of grief. We can begin to think that no one has ever hurt like us, that no one understands what we're going through, how difficult the simplest things in life have become. So today I am praying for you. I pray that God would meet you where you're at. I pray that you would feel his presence, that his presence would be felt and known to you. I pray that he would provide clarity in the confusion of grief. I pray that he would give you patience in the healing process and that you would be kind to yourself as you learn new routines and life without the person that you love. And I pray most of all that you would experience his deep love and comfort because he is close to the brokenhearted and those who are crushed in spirit. Church, I am praying for you. And again, I wanna encourage you to check out our resource page for this series to find valuable resources to support you in your journey.